We've been having a little bit of fun this week in our household, sharing the funniest parenting tweets that we can find. And so this morning, I thought that I might start with a couple of our favourites. Our Lisa for you. Me. It's Jesus' birthday today. Five-year-old. What should I get him? Me. You could be nice to your sisters. Five-year-old. I'll get him a hat. (laughs) Five-year-old. While walking up behind me, I'm on the computer. What game are you playing? Me. I'm paying bills. Five-year-old. Are you winning? Me. No. (laughs) Me. Did you have a good day at school? Six-year-old. That's not how school works. (laughs) If you've ever watched Veggie Tales, I like this one. We went into the basement during a tornado. My three-year-old thought we were hiding from a tomato. Honestly, that scared her even more. (laughs) Three-year-old. Can we have birthday cake? Me. It's not your birthday. Three-year-old. The cake won't know. Me, happy birthday. You're three. Three-year-old, no, I'm two. Me, birthdays make you older. Three-year-old, no, they don't. Wife, same. <laughs> Last one, three-year-old. You get lots of letters from your friends. Me, they are bills. They want money. Three-year-old, you need better friends. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, laughter's good medicine. We are heading this morning to Matthew 7, so you might like to turn there. And also, while you're at it, we're going to read a short um, parable out of Matthew 21 as well. So Matthew 7, we're going to start at verse 21, and then Matthew chapter 21, we're going to turn there as well. While you're just finding that, I shall pray. Heavenly Father, we just come this morning with anticipation and an expectancy because we know that you are a God who speaks to us. We thank you, God, for the privilege of being able to open your word together this morning. We ask, Father, that you would speak what it is that you want to share with us this morning. And we choose to open our ears and incline our hearts to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So starting in Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man 
who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And we're just going to turn over to Matthew 21 and just read this parable. It starts at verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For God came to you in the way, sorry, John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. I wonder what comes to mind for you when you hear the word obedience. Obedience is not a particularly popular concept in our modern society, is it? I doubt very much that we would see as the key title on a book, Obedience, it featuring in the New York Times bestseller list. Today, the word obey has many negative connotations attached to it. In our Western culture, we tend to view obedience as an unwilling, forced decision to do something we don't want to do to avoid punishment. And yet, as followers of Christ, we cannot avoid the truth that obedience is a central theme throughout Scripture and a core value in the kingdom of God. Throughout the Bible, we read of God using flawed, ordinary men and women to do extraordinary things for him. You probably have your own idea of heroes of the faith, but let's think for a moment of a man like Abraham who was told to leave the land and go to the place that God was sending him without knowing what that place was. Or indeed, the more famous call to obedience to sacrifice his son Isaac. Or what about Moses, who God commanded to lead his people out of Egypt and out of slavery? Or there's Gideon. Or indeed, in the New Testament, we read about Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, who was instructed by the Lord to stay with Mary when he was preparing to divorce her. Or Ananias, who was sent to Saul at a time when Saul would have been considered like you being called now to go and speak to a leader of ISIS to proclaim the gospel. Although each one of these um, men and women of the faith, some of them may have had reluctant starts, it is their obedience to the Lord that is the common characteristic of these heroes of the faith. You see, a life of obedience is part of living the normal Christian life. So what is biblical obedience? I'm glad you asked. 
The Hebrew word for obey in the Old Testament is the word shuma, shuma, and it literally means to hear or to take heed, to use a more old-fashioned terminology, to hearken even. But more specifically, it means to hear intelligently, often with the implication of our attention and our obedience. Now, it's really important for us to remember that in Hebrew thinking, this is not merely our mental or intellectual assent to what we hear, and it's not just the physical hearing with the ears, but it's more a hearing with our heart. What it means, this word shuma, encapsulates having a heart that hears and is intent and committed to responding to the Lord. So a heart that hears and is intent and committed to responding to the Lord. Likewise, when we look up the Greek words that we find in the New Testament for obey, we get this similar theme of hearing or listening in a state of submission, literally translated to listen under. And then another word that we find translated in the New Testament to obey means to trust. But but throughout the Old and the New Testament is this theme that obedience is linked strongly to the idea of hearing. I wonder if this perhaps shed some light on why Jesus used the phrase, he who has ears, let him hear. That he was basically saying, are you listening with your heart? Are you taking heed to what I am saying to you? I think we'd all agree that true obedience is impossible without listening and hearing first. Certainly those of us who are parents would definitely agree with that statement. I'm sure we've all had the experience with selective deafness or selective hearing, depending on which way you want to view it. Um, I have certainly been known in my household when chores haven't been done and the excuse was, I didn't hear you. I've been known to say, well, if I said there's free chocolate in the kitchen right now, I'm fairly sure you would have heard and immediately responded swiftly into the kitchen. The definition of biblical obedience, and I guess this is the thing I want to really reinforce for us today, the definition of biblical obedience carries with it the mandate to listen, to hear with your heart, and to do. Biblical obedience is to hear God's word and act accordingly. And James reiterates this in 1 James where he says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only. So as we consider what it means to obey today, I guess what I want to do first is make a bit of a distinction for us about the requirements of obedience. In scripture, we find a clear mandate to live a life walking in obedience to God's moral standard. It's clearly laid out for us, God's moral standard. And this doesn't change for us individually. It doesn't change for us regardless of what season of life we're in. This remains the same for all of us, this call to obey God's moral standard. So love God, 
love your neighbours, walk humbly, act justly, honour your parents, do not steal. These are all parts that form God's moral standard that is the same for all of us. But then we also have a call to obey God in more specific things in our life. And those are often different from one another. So, and they also may be different within our life in different seasons. So let me see if I can illustrate this with some examples. In our family life, to be obedient to the Lord, we sent our girls to a Christian school. God asked us to do that. He may not have asked you to do the same. In my life, being obedient to the Lord looked like a season where I stayed at home with my children despite having job offers in that time. On Monday, I had the opportunity to obey the Lord's prompting as I had a conversation with one of the labourers who's building a studio in our back garden at the moment about Jesus. And I got to follow the Lord's prompting in that moment Now, does that mean every time somebody is working in our back garden, I'm necessarily going to have that conversation? Not necessarily. But in that moment, to obey the Lord and his prompting, I had a conversation with this man. So none of these things form for us some blanket moral mandate. I can't go around saying to you all, well... You all need to send your children to a Christian school. You all should be home with your children without doing any work or that you should all talk to every person who comes to do work in your house. These were things that God specifically spoke to me and to my family about. So I just want to start, as we start this conversation about obedience, to understand we have um, a command to follow God's moral standard and to be obedient to that. That we are all That is for all of us. But we also in our life have unique things that God will ask us to listen to him in and to obey on. And what we find when we read about the life of Jesus is that he actually modelled both of these two things. He modelled full obedience to the moral standard and law of God. And then more specifically, we read that he only did what he saw his father doing. He modelled a life that was fully surrendered and obedient to the will of his father for his life. And then we see that Jesus demanded the same of his disciples and followers. Regularly, he made the link for them between loving him and keeping his commandments and listening and acting upon what he taught them and demonstrated to them. And sometimes he commanded them all generically and asked them all to do something. And sometimes he asked one of them specifically to do something. So we not only have a clear instruction manual, if you like, for ourselves found in the word of God, We not only have the examples that we read of Jesus' life, but also of many other men and women of faith. But we also, as Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1.3, we also have his divine power that is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So God's grace and power at work in us through the Holy Spirit makes possible the obedience that he demands of us. Now that doesn't annul our responsibility and our requirement for action. We still have to choose obedience. But again, right up front as a foundation as we talk about obedience, I want us to remember that not only do we have a clear instruction manual, not only do we have many examples through Jesus' life and through other people of faith through Scripture and even who live before us now, but we are also to remember that the power of God is at work in us and through us to do what it is that he asks us to do. So what does it look like to live a life walking in obedience? I love, you'll probably find often that I ask this question, what does it look like? I, I always want to know what does, what does this look like in my life? How does this apply? And so what I want to spend the remainder of our time together is just a couple of things that... Um, God really has shown me as I've been digging around and allowing him to speak to my heart about this. What does it look like to walk in obedience? So firstly, to walk in obedience means to do what he says. Sounds obvious. Matthew 7 forms part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, um, this is a lengthy teaching from the Lord on the moral standards of God's kingdom. But in it, he completely ups the ante on these familiar Jewish laws to actually address the heart of his hearers. What he's doing is he's challenging them that their obedience to the moral standards of God, God's kingdom are more than just their outward appearance. That in fact, it's more than just what they look like in their behaviour, but it's also their inner thoughts and their heart attitudes. And then we get to the passage that we read today in Matthew 7, which I have to say I've always found to be a fairly confronting passage. You know, Jesus is rattling off this list of seemingly very spiritual activities like prophesying and casting out demons and doing mighty works all in the name of Jesus. And then he states bluntly, just because you're doing these things in my na name doesn't mean we have relationship. That's the Catherine paraphrase. But that's basically what he's saying. Just because you're doing these things in my name does not mean that we have relationship. He says, not everyone who calls on my name will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. I want to remind us here that the teaching and the example that these people have received to date has been from the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day who were very good at doing a lot of seemingly spiritual things praying on street corners so that people could see them, making sure everybody knew that they were fasting, giving their offerings with a flourish so people could see exactly what was going in the offering plate. These men were following many man-made rituals and customs to appear pious and righteous. 
they were so totally wrapped up in their own ways that they had completely missed the will of the Father and they didn't even submit or even acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ right in their midst, the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Jesus then goes on to further his point by telling this story that we read about the two builders. And I find it really fascinating about this story is both these men are builders. Both of them are building a house. So we don't just have one man who's a builder and diligently applying himself and doing work and then the other one who's a lazy couch potato doing nothing. Both of these people are building something. The only distinction that Jesus makes between these two men is that one heeds his words and does them and the other one doesn't. And so he's saying that when you heed my words and do them, you are building on a sure and firm foundation. He's further highlighting to his listeners, you can't call me Lord and then not do what I say. Hearing and doing my word is what will be the only sure foundation. I think it's really important, particularly linking these passages into a, 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 a chapter of scripture or a, an outline that Jesus is giving through the Sermon on the Mount where he is particularly dealing with the heart for us to remember that obedience is a heart issue and at its root it is a lordship issue. And as Jesus stresses, it flows out of relationship with him, out of knowing him. So if we call Jesus Lord, we will do what he says. I was reminded when I was preparing during the week of the conversation in the Old Testament that Samuel had with Saul. Saul was now rejected by the Lord as king. He had been persistently disobedient, despite doing many great exploits in the name of the Lord. And Samuel says this to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your, or, or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than the offering of the fat of rams. Anything we try to build without listening and obeying the Lord is on shifting sand. God is not looking for our sacrifice. What he is looking for is our obedience. True obedience doesn't actually leave room for our own ideas and contract amendments. At its very core, biblical obedience means listening in submission to the Lord and doing what he says. So then in Matthew 21, we read this story 
of two sons, not two builders, two sons this time. And in this particular um, passage of scripture, Jesus is directly addressing the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They've been trying to nail him again and they're actually again challenging his authority. And Jesus uses this reproving parable. I learned about that this week. Uh, this reproving parable. And what a reproving parable was, and Jesus did use them quite cleverly at times, it's one where they judged themselves by their answer to his question. So his question in this parable is, which one did the will of his father? Which one of the two sons did the will of his father? And through their answer, they then judged themselves. So this parable is set in a vineyard. There's a father. There are two sons of the same father. And both are given the same command. One son gives an outright no, but later um, changes his mind, we read. And the second son says yes, but does not act or follow through. Now, this parable is certainly not condoning an outright no to the father. What Jesus is doing is drawing a comparison between the tax collectors and the prostitutes who had previously been walking in their own sinful ways in opposition to the will of the Father, but in repentance had turned, and comparing those to the religious leaders he had before them, who may have appeared to have said yes to God, but were not honouring him with their lives in obedience and action, and were not doing the will of the Father. And Jesus makes this scathing assessment that we read here. It says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. And that word for changing your mind, that is repentance. That's what repentance means. It means repentance, to change your mind. And so that's actually what we're reading about the first son. The first son repents and his repentance is evidenced by his obedience to the will of his father. So I'll say that again. With the first son, he repents and the evidence of his repentance is that he obeys the will of his father. So walking in obedience is more than lip service or our good intentions. The proof of obedience is in the doing. We've got this contrast with the second son who says, yep, yep, I'll go, and then doesn't show. Sometimes, well, I'll speak for myself, sometimes I don't like what God asks me to do. Sometimes I've run off looking for an alternative and even I have at times given the father an outright no. But often our disobedience is a little bit more subtle than that, isn't it? We might just amend the plan a bit just to suit our own purposes. When Beth was about three or four, she was in a season of her life where she was rather wise in her own eyes, shall we say. And I asked her to go and sit on a chair to get some self-control. Well, she went into the living room where I'd pointed and sat on a completely different chair on the opposite side of the room to the one I asked her to sit on. 
Now, might not seem like a big deal, but it was definitely a, I am going to do this my way. I think sometimes we can just be a little bit subtly disobedient like that. We're asked something, we just tweak it. Just You didn't really mean that chair over there, did you? I, I could sit on this chair. Other times, our disobedience shows up in that we start, but we finish prematurely. Maybe because we've got a short attention span, or we'd actually like a different set of instructions, or we'd prefer what somebody else has been asked to do. And if I'm brutally honest, there are times I resist God because what he's asked me to do doesn't actually even feel all that spiritual. Maybe not prominent enough or just quite important enough to obey. But the obedience to the will of the Father is not about us. There is no doubt, of course, that living a life of obedience changes us. It transforms us, actually. And that the scripture tells us that our faithfulness in the little things does demonstrate our trustworthiness for bigger things. There is no doubt about that. But our obedience is plainly and simply the acknowledgement of his lordship in our life. It's not about us. It's about him. So obedience is about doing what God has put right in front of you now and following through until he tells you something different. There's a quality about obedience that requires a steadfastness, a stickiness, a sticking with it. Because often, um, I've certainly found in my life, I, I get distracted or I lose, you know, I'm, I'm a great starter. I think I said this last time I was preaching. I'm a really good starter. I'm a very lousy finisher. But actually, obedience isn't just starting well. Obedience is also finishing well. And then the other sneaky thing about obedience is it's present, not future rated. Now, what I mean by that is it's, it's about what we're doing right now. It's not m- what we might intend to do. I wonder if sometimes the Lord finds us sounding a little bit like kids who maybe haven't done their chores and say, oh, but I was going to do it. So let me ask you, are you being steadfast doing the thing that God has asked you to do right now? Because to walk in obedience means to do what he says. And then secondly, walking in obedience is more than just following a set of rules. The Pharisees that Jesus was addressing had completely lost their way. 
They adhered to a very strict set of laws and regulations, um, which they were always trying to bust Jesus over, weren't they? Don't heal on the Sabbath. You didn't wash your hands properly. I mean, they were really constantly looking for ways to be critical and to trip people up for not adhering to this whole set of rules and regulations. And yet they were failing in the basic tenets of faith, of serving and having compassion and mercy. They had missed the relational nature of obedience, the relational nature of obedience. You see, for us as believers, obedience is the outworking of our love and devotion and trust in the Lord. Obedience is how we demonstrate our love for him and our trust in him and our confidence in him. When we know God, when we really know God, when we know him as the good, good father, when we know and declare that he is faithful, when we are confident in his nature, it actually makes it easy to obey. Or to put it another way, to walk in obedience You do have to be confident in who God is. Our God is faithful. He is good all the time. And so when he asks us to do things and when he asks us to do things that are out of the box, to remember all the time our God is good, our God is faithful, helps us to know that he has us. What he's asking of us, he has us covered for. So we are not merely motivated by the externals, the wanting to avoid punishment. Ours is an internal motivation of devotion and worship. In Acts 8, we read um, an example of this, and you might like to turn there. I'll tell you a bit of the backstory here first. This is the story of Philip the Evangelist. Now, Philip is a next-generation disciple of Jesus. He didn't necessarily run directly with Jesus. He was selected by the apostles at the same time as Stephen was chosen amongst seven men because they were, going, they were getting some logistic problems um, around management of so many people coming to Christ. And so they asked these seven men filled with the Spirit to come and to help alleviate some of the practical issues that had come up. So Philip had been taught and discipled in the early church. He'd served at tables to allow the apostles to be free to preach. So what I guess what I want to paint for you is he's a man who had obediently done what was put before him to do. And then what happened is that persecution increased in Jerusalem and the believers were scattered. And Philip ends up in Samaria proclaiming the gospel and performing many signs and wonders in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing incredible things happen. So he is walking in obedience to the commission of Jesus in his life to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. But I guess what I want to highlight for you in the passage we're going to read now is that he didn't just do this generically by following a set of rules. 
So let's have a look at this account of Philip in Acts 8, 26 to 30. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, remember he's been in Samaria, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The requirement for obedience here for Philip is very specific, isn't it, rather than generic. Rise up and go south to this particular road, which he does. And then as he does what he's first been asked, the next instruction comes. Go over and join that chariot. And in immediate obedience, with very little information, but complete confidence in the trustworthiness of God, Philip does what he's told. I want to remind you, Philip, they've experienced persecution. At this point, I'm assuming we're told as the readers that this man is reading Isaiah. Philip has no idea at a distance what this guy's doing on his chariot. He doesn't know whether he's somebody who's going to be hostile to the gospel or whether he's going to be open to the gospel. But he does not question the Lord. He does exactly what he's asked to do. And the other thing I find quite incredible is that God summoned Peter out of a thriving ministry in Samaria into the middle of the Judean desert. That doesn't exactly seem like like a wise move, does it? Um, And yet doing the will of the Father often doesn't look like a wise move. So this Ethiopian man that he approaches is very powerful. I don't want us to lose sight of that. He, he controls the treasury for the queen of the Ethiopians. They were a very wealthy nation. This is a wealthy and powerful man. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Philip runs to him, engages this man in conversation and he demonstrates this complete submission to the will of the Father. And as the result of this one man's obedience, this Ethiopian receives the good news of Jesus with great joy. He can't wait to be baptised. He basically sees a puddle and says, let's stop the chariot. I want to be baptised right now. And to this day, the Ethiopian church claims continuous worship of Jesus from that time. One man's obedience in the moment to do something that seemed like an odd thing to do led to a nation hearing about the good news of Jesus Christ. So to live this kind of life of obedience is more than just simply following a set of rules and regulations. 
A life of obedience is a life lived in step with the Spirit, listening to him and acting accordingly. When we walk in obedience, what we do as God's people is we give full expression to our confidence and trust in who God is and we acknowledge his lordship in our life. My exhortation to us today is let us be a people who hear with our hearts, with the intent and commitment to respond to the will of our Father. Because as followers of Christ, we can do nothing wiser than obey the Lord. Would you like to stand this morning? Father, as we prepare to go from this place this morning, we just really want to acknowledge again your lordship in our lives and the strong link for us, God, as your people between demonstrating our love and being obedient to your call and your word. And so, Father, we recognise that, God, we don't always obey But I thank you, God, that you have made provision in the Lord Jesus Christ for us to repent, for us to change our mind. And so, Father, this morning we come before you and where there are areas in our life where you have given clear instruction that we are maybe not following. We take time, God, to repent before you. and to receive your forgiveness. And Father, we determine this morning as your people to be a people who obey, to be a people who have hearts that hear, that we would be a people who would listen and do what you say. Would you help us with that, God? I thank you, God, that you do not ask any of us that you do not make full and bountiful provision for us in. And, and we thank you, God, for the presence of Holy Spirit in our lives that gives us the power and the grace to obey you in the way that you are worthy of and that you desire. We give you permission, God, to be at work in our lives. Keep changing us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.